The Bible describes a vision for a life that is truly magnificent. Jesus himself said in John chapter 4, verse 14, that those who give their lives to him will receive living water, will receive his spirit. And it's so glorious that it's so profound that all of our deepest desires are satisfied no matter how disappointing or painful or uncertain our lives can be. This bubbling over of living water. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, 19 and 20 that believers will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled with all the fullness of God by the power at work within us that is able to accomplish far more than we can ask or imagine. Being filled with the fullness of God. And then the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 that those who love and trust Jesus will says, receive with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then in verse 22, 1 Peter 1 He says that this joy will overflow and be so bubbling over. He says that it leads to, he says, deep love for one another from a pure heart. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, very same context. He says that as we experience this love of God, it results in no more, he says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. It results in a transformed life that reaches out to others with love, with no envy, no hypocrisy, walking in holiness and in purity. This is an astonishing vision for what our lives are meant to be. He, God created us. He designed us to live transformed lives that are full of purpose, that are full of joy and genuine love for other people, to live lives that are free from insecurity, depression, anger, selfishness, envy, or or sinful patterns. Now, does that not sound great to you? I mean, that's the kind of life that we're made to live, but I already know what some of you in the room are thinking. I don't know, but I know. Well, I would love to live like that. I've tried, Pastor. It hasn't worked out. I've failed. I've attempted it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It really hasn't panned out the way you're describing. I keep ending up right back where I started in my same life filled with disappointment, filled with pain and with struggles. And maybe you're thinking, this vision for a life that you're describing to me is, quite honestly, more discouraging than it is inspiring. Or maybe you're in the room and you're thinking to yourself, my life can't change. I've tried. Maybe I just don't have what it takes to live the kind of life that you're describing. And perhaps you're one of many people that have just settled in to going through the motions, 
and just accepting a pseudo sort of Christian life that is pretty numb and passionless, where you're just checking off religious boxes. Are you this morning emotionally or spiritually exhausted? Are you just tired? Are you worn out? Maybe you're thinking, okay, you're talking to me right now. I don't know how. Can I hide? Because you're talking straight to me. Well, I can assure you that this exhaustion can affect any of us or all of us. But you have to know, based upon the authority of God's word, not my authority, but the authority from God's word, that Jesus offers strength for the worn out. He does. He offers empowering. He offers strength to those that are worn out. See, Jesus won the victory over sin and death, and his victory is our victory. And so we have the power, the gifting, the ability. We lack nothing to live the kind of life that is described in the Word of God. We truly can, by his grace, through his empowering, doing this together We can live a life like what we are describing. We can live this vision for life that God has. And the reason is that Jesus lives his life through you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he will empower you. He will so that your character and your calling match up. Because oftentimes what we know we're called to, how to live, and so our calling and our character oftentimes really aren't congruent. And yet, it can be. Again, I'm not talking about a holy perfection, but I am talking about living in such a way that you're in a holy direction in your life with a propensity to love, trust, and obey Jesus. And so we're going to read this morning about how this happens, how it's possible for our character and our calling to match up and live out this glorious vision for life that God's Word describes. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And here's what God's Word says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Did you hear that? That you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Instead, that you will do what? Run with endurance the race that is set before And through his empowering, we can do this. And so let us see the primary truth 
from this text. Main idea is that believers are called to push aside their sin and run hard after Jesus. This is what the text is revealing, that we are called to push aside our sin and run hard after Jesus. Because in Jesus, he calls us to find life. But our problem is that due to our corrupted, sinful nature, we all try to find our joy, our approval, our comfort, our meaning, our life. We look elsewhere other than Jesus. So as we kind of get started this morning, I want to ask you a question to honestly ponder. What are you chasing after? What are you running after? Be honest with yourself. What are you looking for? What is it that you want most in life? Based upon the authority of God's word, if it's not Jesus, it won't satisfy. It won't. It can't. You were made for more. And trust me, I know. I have enough gray coming in already where I can assure you, I know. If you chase after career, yes, even if it's ministry. If you're chasing after finding approval through your wife or through your husband, through approval of others, religious accomplishments, personal experience, as much as God's word, I can tell you, it will not satisfy your soul. It will leave you hungry and thirsty and wanting more. And you keep running and chasing, like Solomon says, it's like striving after the wind, following and chasing the wind, and you're never going to get it. It's never enough. All it will do is leave you exhausted. Running after the things of this world, because you were not made for the things of this world, you were made for Jesus. And even enjoying the things of this world are meant to be an expression of, of gratitude to Jesus. And so if you are chasing after things of this world, it leads to exhaustion. However, if you run after Jesus, and if you run hard after Jesus, it will leave your soul rested. It sounds like a paradox. It sounds like, wait, how does that work? It's true. You run after this world, you're going to get tired. You run after Jesus, and you will find your soul at peace. And at rest. Hebrews 12, verse 1, we just read this. He says, We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sing sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run this race with endurance. Some of you have stopped running. Now, maybe you're walking. Maybe you're just kind of strolling. Like, there are some times I'll go to the mall, and I'm on the mission. I have to go to one store, or I have to do one thing, and I'm trying to go quick, and people are just kind of strolling in the mall, and you're trying to go around them. You're like, I have to go, I have to be somewhere. 
I'm not just there to stroll or just kind of hang out. But sometimes I think that we're just kind of meandering or we're just kind of strolling towards Jesus. But that's not what it says. It says run with endurance, run with purpose, know where you are going. So this is the imperative, run, chase after him. But it doesn't just say do this on your own strength. It says it also, this text reveals the source for the strength to do it. Because in our strength, we can't. We'll burn out. We'll get distracted and get off the path and chase after other things. And so what is the source of the strength for us to be able to run this race with endurance? It says it in this text. So if you're weary or discouraged or maybe feel powerless today, then this is God's word for you. So let's see the source of the strength to keep running after Jesus. Number one, this is the source of our strength. Is number one is believing that you are not alone. You have to know and believe that you are not alone as you are running this race set before you. If you believe you're on your own, then you're going to stumble or you're going to get off the path. You're not on your own. Don't even try doing it on your own. You're not. It says in verse 1 that we are surrounded, it says, by witnesses. It says, then, since you have these witnesses, push aside your sin and run this race. So it's saying the first thing is run the race based upon the fact that you have these witnesses. So this is the first source for our strength is these witnesses. You're thinking, well, I don't understand. Well, who are these witnesses and what exactly are they doing? Well, chapter 11, the chapter before 12, describes many different people. It describes Abel, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, and, and several others. Sometimes it's called the Hall of Faith in just common language. It describes people that trusted in God and believed his promises to the coming Messiah. And it says that they believed God, they trusted him in the face of, it says, affliction, torture, imprisonment, being sawn in two, Death, I mean, it, it describes great suffering, and yet these people kept trusting God. Not in their own strength. They kept running the race. And so it describes these witnesses, these believers of the Old Testament. Now, when you see the word witness, it can mean one of two different things. In the original, as much as in today's English language, a witness be someone who sees something. So if you saw what happened, you're a witness. So to see something. But it can also mean to tell something. And so a witness is one who testifies, who gives a testimony. And so witness can mean seeing something or telling something. And so which is it? Are these witnesses, Old Testament believers that are up in heaven, that are watching us? And so they're seeing us. And so somehow knowing that they're watching us is meant to be an encouragement to us. Is that what it means? Or does it mean that these, these past believers, that the way they live their lives is telling us something that is a witness, a testimony that we must understand? And somehow that is an encouragement. Well, I'll say this. I firmly believe that it is these are believers 
that are telling us something, not seeing something. Because these are people that are not spectators just watching us from heaven. These are real people who really lived, who had real problems, pain, discouragement, uncertainty, disappointment, struggles with sin. They had real problems, and yet they ran the race. They ran after God. They ran the race set before them. And so these are fellow participants, not spectators. The point here that God is trying to reveal on mentioning these these testimonies of those who live before us is to remind us that there have been people that have been following Jesus before you were born who faced similar struggles, and they ran the race. You are not alone. It's been done before. This is meant to remind and to encourage you. You are not alone. There are those that have run before you, and we stand upon their shoulders, and they did it with joy, and by God's grace, God sustained them. His Spirit empowered them, and He can do the same for you. But I believe that an an application of this same truth is you look around the room, and you see more living testimonies. Yes, there's a testimony of all of these godly men who lived before, but just look. You have a room full of other living testimonies, other witnesses of God's grace, living examples of the grace of God in action. Just look at the lives of God's people. I have spoken to so many people, and it's sad to say, but that have come to Abu Dhabi and have left because work, it's just life in this region. And I can't remember ever talking to someone who was here for at least a year, so a significant amount of time, that became engaged in church life, who left here and said, well, this was just kind of a waste of time. My, my time at this church and in Abu Dhabi was just kind of a pit stop, and now I'm off to something else. I've never heard that. All I ever hear is, I came here and I found Jesus. I came here and I learned how to read the Bible for myself. I came here and I'm on fire for Christ now. I came here and I'm actually following him for real now. It's not just a religious casual thing now. I came here and I received Christ. That's all I ever hear. And it's so humbling to see God's spirit at work. But it's because we're not doing it alone. We're encouraging each other, and we're living testimonies of what God is doing. So you can't do this alone. We need each other to run this race. And so if you're here, and you kind of just show up on a Friday, oh, you're missing out. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says that we are a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the people together that have received the mercy of God. And we belong to him and to each other. And so we encourage each other. Following Jesus, running this race is not a solo sport. It's not like tennis where you're playing by yourself. That's not 
That's not how this works. It's a team. It's collective. It's a family, which is what we are, a faith family. And so are you pursuing true relationships? People know who you are in this room. Are you known? If you're just showing up, you're not living the way you're supposed to. And I can tell you this, you will not have the strength to run the race set before you. You can't do it alone. You must believe that you are not alone in this. There are witnesses right alongside of you. They give us strength to keep running the race. Number two, A second source of spiritual blessing is beholding Jesus. So believing you're not alone, number two, beholding Jesus. To behold just means to gaze, to look upon something, but with great interest. Not a casual glance, but intently looking with interest. It says here in verse 2 that we run this race set before us by looking to Jesus. We look to him. That is the foundation for a life that is satisfying, that is bursting with joy, and that's on mission for Jesus, is looking to Jesus. You cannot look right and walk left. You're going to run into something. It's not possible. Where you are looking, that is where you're going to walk. And so whatever has your gaze, whatever you're focused on, is going to define the direction that you go. And so spiritually in your life, whatever you're focused on, whatever you're looking at, whatever you're beholding, will dictate the direction of your life. How many times have you been in the mall where you're walking and there's someone walking straight for you, but they're on their phone? Ever seen that? And, and they don't see you because they're looking down, and, but they're walking straight. They're going to run into you. And so you're, you're just wondering, do I let them run into me, or do I sidestep them? Do I put my elbow out? Like, what do I do with this person who's on their phone walking straight at me? Usually, I just step aside because I don't want to embarrass them because I've done it myself. I've run into benches and columns. It's embarrassing. Um, but <laughs> it's not funny, Ashley. Well, it is. The reality is oftentimes we are walking and we're not paying attention where we're going. We're not looking at where we're going. And so we need to be focused on where we are going. And so he says there's a race set before you. There's a path of following Jesus. So you have to look up and not be distracted. We can't be distracted by the things of this world. He says take off the weight. Take off the sin. Put it aside. It's weighing you down, it's keeping you from running the race. But a lot of times, it's not even the evil things. A lot of times, it's good things that can weigh you down. It's just busyness of family life or work or entertainment or your finances, your career. It could be social media. There's so many little ways and little things that just grab all of our attention and eat up our extra time and our, our emotional and mental energy. And we don't spend time communing with Christ and looking to Him because we're distracted by, quote-unquote, good things, but not the main thing. And so I'm not saying neglect your family. What I'm saying is make Jesus a priority, and I can promise you your family will be just fine. 
So he says, take off the things that weigh you down, but also the sin that clings so closely. Do you have a habitual sinful pattern that is just weighing you down and prevents you from running this race? You have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You have to know who you're beholding. He has the power to give you freedom. He can liberate you from that. But he only does it when we look to him. He will not free you if you don't look to him. This is the way he has revealed that he frees us, is by looking to the founder, the author. And then this word here, perfecter, means like perfectly finishing. So it's like beginning and ending. So he's the author and the finisher of our faith from A to Z beginning and the end. He began our salvation, and he will finish it one day. And so we trust him. We honestly seek to enjoy him. We believe that apart from Christ, we have no hope, but we have to know and truly believe this, not just intellectually, but with all of our hearts. It doesn't matter how religious you think you are or how much good you are trying to do. It won't be enough because God does require from us perfection. And we all fall short, which is why it says in this verse 2 that he endured the cross. There was no other way for us to be forgiven. There's no other way. Jesus is fully human. He died on the cross and took our guilt and our shame. He's a human. He represented us, he, but he's also fully God. And so he was able to maintain the holy standard, never sin, die on our cross as our sacrifice, and be resurrected, fully human, fully God, paying the price for our sins. And his resurrection proves that he is God and that the Father is satisfied. He's not angry anymore because the price has been paid, so Christ is resurrected. We have to believe this. And if you're here, and if you're searching, and you've never believed this, then you are lost. You are spiritually far from God. You might know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus personally. But you can. All you have to do is, all your heart, trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Repent. Turn away from your sins. And he will change you. His spirit will come inside of you and transform you. And you will sense his presence like we've sung about so powerfully this morning. And then you can be on this race as well, experiencing the joy that comes with it. But even as believers, we have to keep growing and keep following him. And we, we forget sometimes that we don't have any strength left to ourselves. We have no power, no strength. We can't. Hear me. We can't run this race on our own strength. You have no power, no ability on your own to do anything of eternal value. We don't. We have no strength. Which is why we look to the founder and perfecter of our faith, only Jesus. It's all about trust. It's about our faith in him. And so beholding Jesus has that starting point when you came to faith initially, but then, you, but then you have to continue in looking to him, continue beholding Jesus so you can then 
grow deeper and to know him better. And so practically speaking, how does this work on a day-in, day-out basis? How How do you look to Jesus? You read the Word. You pray. You fast. You meditate on his word. You talk to Jesus throughout the day. You you sing songs to him throughout the day. You engage in this relationship, sometimes called the spiritual disciplines. But I think sometimes we get the wrong idea of what these things are. So I'm going to give you some examples from boats on how we can oftentimes have the wrong perspective on these disciplines of prayer and, and reading the word and so forth. Some people think of it as a rowboat, and they're rowing. And so the oars are the disciplines of prayer and reading the word, and they put their oars in the water of life, and they're rowing really hard. They're reading a lot. They're praying a lot. They're serving on four ministry teams. They're super busy for Jesus. And they believe that they're going to row and work really hard, and they're going to get very far down the road or the ocean, this is just a metaphor, follow me. They're going to get very far, travel a very long way by their own strength. And so as far as their arms can row and they can work and they can read and pray is how far they're going to get. This is a legalistic mentality. This is believing that in a subtle way God saved you, but you have to keep earning it by doing enough good after that. This is not healthy. This is not a good, healthy view of prayer and reading the word of the disciplines. It's not. It's not a rowboat. Something, oh, it's not. It's a speedboat. All you have to do is turn the ignition and just hold on. You don't have to do the work of rowing. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read the Bible. It's not, if you want to, that's fine. It's not bad. It's a good thing to do. But you don't need to. And besides that, God is sovereign. So he'll take you where he wants to take you anyway. Just hold on for heaven. Just let go and let God. This very subtle mentality that you don't have to work. You just have to sit back and let God take you wherever he wants, like in a speedboat. Don't worry about prayer. It's it's not important. Now, we would never say it that way, but our attitude sometimes reveals that we actually feel this way. But neither of those is biblical. It's not a rowboat. It's not a speedboat. The, bi- the best picture of this is a sailboat. Now, I'm not a sailor, but I've seen enough to know this, that a sailboat is a lot of work. You have to tie knots and pull the rope and put up the sails. It, it, they're working hard on that, on that sailboat. So they're praying. This is a metaphor. Praying, reading the word, doing work. But here's the difference. When you're in a sailboat, you know that you are dependent upon the wind. You can't control the wind. All of your work guarantees you nothing on going anywhere because you need the winds to blow to move you. However, by doing the work of tying the knots and putting up the sails, you're being put in the position for the winds to blow and move you. When you pray, when you read the Word, when you meditate on Him, yes, that's effort. No one's denying it. But what it does is it puts you in the position for the Spirit of God to blow in your life. 
It puts you in the best possible position to experience His presence. And, and the work of prayer and reading the Word is the work of looking to Jesus so that you can have relationship with Him. So we pursue Him through His Word and through prayer. But we do it through a posture of dependence, knowing that we need Him. And when we pray and read the Word, we're admitting, I need you. And so this is how we look to Jesus, depending. And as we wrap things up, because our time has expired, number three, believing that Jesus is better. And so we believe that we're not alone. We believe that we'll behold Jesus and believe that Jesus is better. It says in verse 2 that Jesus had great joy to glorify the Father by going to the cross. It says that he despised the shame. Now, that doesn't mean that he hated it. That's not what despise means in this context. To dis- that word despise refers to thinking little of. And so Jesus didn't ignore the shame. He didn't hate it. That's not what it means. It means that he took the shame that it took because when compared to glorifying the Father, it was of little consequence. And so he saw so much more worth and so much more joy in, in having the Father pleased with him and having that relationship and the presence of God meant more to him than whatever shame he would have to incur. And so to him, obedience was better because what he wanted was more of God, including dying on the cross to save us from our sin. And this is our example. This is what gives us strength, believing that Jesus is better, truly with all our hearts, believing that he is more satisfying than the things that this world is going to offer. And so Jesus modeled giving up the lesser to get the greater. And so to him, the shame was lesser than the glory of of redemption and of the Father's glory was greater. And so it's whatever the cost, Jesus is worth it. You know our problem, though, when we hear that phrase, counting the cost? We think, oh, it's going to be miserable. I don't want to have to count the cost because that means it's going to be uncomfortable or hot. It's not going to be good. I, I know it. And I, you know what fear is? As I've, I've thought about it this week, fear. Fear is the anticipation of harm. That's what fear is. It's like you're anticipating something bad is going to happen. So we're, we're afraid of that. And so we're afraid when we hear the cost of following Jesus. But here's the thing. Whatever price it costs for us to follow Jesus the reward is so much greater. Whatever we pay here on this side of heaven is so little because even now we still get his presence. We still have his spirit. We still have salvation. But on the other side of the resurrection, what we have for eternity is so much better. Knowing Jesus more deeply. Believing that he is better. Looking to him to be delivered from whatever is ailing us. And he'll deliver you, but maybe not in your timeline. Maybe not how you think. He'll provide for you, but maybe not how you think. Maybe it's not how you want it, but it's better because God is sovereign. And we sing he is sovereign over us, but do we truly treasure, are we thankful that he is?
And sometimes God has to take things away from us that we would want, things that we hold dear. He takes those things away because he wants to show us that he is better. To remind us, you need me. You don't need that, son. I know you think you need it. I know you want it. But it's actually, you actually don't need that. You need more of me. So I'm going to take this away. And that's going to hurt. But I love you too much. You need me more. And he's so good to us to do that. Verse 3 as we wrap up. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. May we not grow weary. May we keep looking to the author and finisher of our faith and draw strength from him because he truly is better. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so humbled that we can enter into your presence, that you would hear us and that we can know you and by your grace make you known. We thank you that you sustain us. We thank you. We just thank you. And we praise you today for we know that your son truly is better. Help us to be more hungry for you, to run hard after you and to not be distracted or to not be weighed down by the things of this world, but to truly trust you. Look to you, Jesus, and then we will have the strength that we need as we follow you together. Help us to be fruitful for you, a church that truly reflects your character. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.